Welcome to the New Books Network. This is the Nordic Asia Podcast. Welcome to the Nordic Asia Podcast, a collaboration sharing expertise on Asia across the Nordic region. I'm Duncan McCargo, Director of NIAS and a Professor of Political Science at the University of Copenhagen. I'm delighted to be talking today to Annalise Lee, who is an Associate Professor of Professional and Intercultural Communication at NHH, the Norwegian School of Economics in Bergen. She's an expert on intercultural communication in the context of Asia. Annalise, great to have you on the podcast. Thank you, Duncan. Hello. Okay. So you work in this field of intercultural communications. Can you give us some background about your career and interests? Yes. I have a multicultural background. I have Mm. juggled most of my life with three cultures. And I have a multidisciplinary background, studied uh, international business, but also linguistics. And at some point of my life, I wanted to bring these disciplines and bring my multicultural background. And it made very much sense to me then to connect the dots of my personal and professional experience Mm -hmm. in intercultural communication. So I wrote a PhD in intercultural communication, looking at the interactions in business settings. And I examined the way people in an international organization made sense of cultural differences in the workplace Mm -hmm. and how they actually communicated when they used English as a lingua franca in Mm -hmm. business settings. And then working on this project, I have drawn on my multidisciplinary background and my professional experience. I would say that my understanding of intercultural communication or, or more specifically, my understanding of culture is, I would say, critical to the essentialist approach of culture. And I want to say that because we'll talk later on on my teaching approach. And this understanding of culture colors the way I teach. So pretty early on, on in my PhD project, I, I felt that the main frameworks to talk about culture in international business or in intercultural communication could not show the full picture of intercultural interactions. What I mean by this is that frameworks such as Hofstede or Hall are large quantitative studies that do not reflect individual behavior. They are quite generalizing. We talk also a lot about the data collection process, etc. But more interestingly, they talk about, they give an, an idea of people's preferences in a monocultural environment. What is, say, accepted and expected, for instance, the French culture among French people. And I think that what is interesting is to look at the intercultural aspect. That is to say, what happens when, say, a Briton specialist on Thailand and living in Denmark, as you are, meets a French Chinese lady who has lived in Norway, right. speaking in a language that is, you know, on my side, not my mother tongue. So how do we interact? What challenges can we have, et cetera? This is what I'm interested in. Research-wise, I've worked on several projects. It's a bit eclectic, but the Mm -hmm. common denominator is that I work with business communication. I look at how employees make sense and deal with cultural differences in the workplace. I look at how people communicate when they do not share the same mother tongues. I have a project where I look at how organizations transfer their culture cultural values, corporate values in international subsidiaries. I've also looked at leadership discourse, crisis communication, 
Now, lately, I've also looked at my own teaching practice, and right. I was recently awarded the status of excellent teacher practitioner. Yes, indeed. Congratulations. That was Thank something you. I noticed, and that was one of the things that stimulated me to get back in touch and ask you to have a conversation with us about what you've been doing. So you've mentioned this idea of intercultural communication in a business context. Obviously, we're the Nordic Asia podcast, and we're particularly interested in how the Nordic and the Asian would intersect. So if you're teaching, for example, Nordic students or, or business people, and they're attempting to interact or work together, collaborate with people from East Asia, what kind of challenges tend to emerge in those communications or miscommunications between these two groups of people? I think if we think about Nordic and, say, East Asia, there are cultural differences that are important to know about. How we relate to hierarchy, for instance, mm -hmm. how I would say in East Asia it is accepted and expected, while in the Nordic countries we have rather flat structures. I've worked mostly with China when I talk about East Asia. So the concept of face is still very important in China. Is not that important in the Nordics and it's very important to think about when interacting or when doing business with Chinese people. The importance of relationship and network is important in many Asian cultures. If I'm thinking about the Chinese culture, mm -hmm. the concept of guangxi is very important while in a, Nordic... a network of personal connections. Yes. While in Nordic countries, each generation is independent from each other. Informality is also prevalent in Nordic countries, in business relationships, for instance, the way you address people in higher position. And again, this is very different from what you would find in many Asian countries where formality is still the rule. So these differences are important. And I would say that failure to understand these differences can harm a work relationship or destroy a negotiation. But again, those are tendencies. So I think it's really important that Nordic students or business people, Nordic business people are aware of these differences when they interact with people from East Asia. On what I've said, you may meet someone who is not, or a Nordic person, Nordic business person, may meet someone who does not act as a, say, typical Asian. Right. Looks Asian, comes from East Asia, but has studied abroad, and does not act as a typical Asian, right? Mm -hmm. So I think what is important is also to have the ability to recognize the fact and possibly adapt quickly to the situation. Right. This is obviously a dilemma that I'm very familiar with as somebody who's been immersed in studying Southeast Asia and particularly Thailand. That There are the foreigners who try too hard yes. <laughs> and their language is excessively polite to the point that the people that they're trying to talk to find it slightly comic because <laughs> they're attempting to be this sort of caricature of the foreigner who bends over backwards to understand the people that they're encountering with. So that's a, a bit of a challenge. Exactly. Yes. So... I'm obviously one of these Asia scholars who spent years and years training in an ongoing, what's really a lifelong attempt to understand certain Southeast Asian societies and particularly Thailand. And someone like me would say, well, if you want to understand Thailand, first, you really need to go and spend a couple of years living in Thailand, learn the language fluently, ideally, you know, embed yourself in the local community and society in a very, very deep and profound way. And after that, let's talk about what you should actually do. 
clearly you can't do that in the, the kind of teaching that you're doing. So how would you offer people sort of shortcuts to understand other cultures that don't involve such elaborate processes as those of us who try to understand Asia professionally are able to engage in? Well, I think that it would be great if we could all spend extended period of time abroad, but as you say, clearly not doable. But I think that another thing that we see more and more, and again, in the context of I teach and I do research in the context of a, a business world, in the business world, people are more and more global, work in global organizations, right. global teams, where several cultures meet. And people can be in the country of origin, say Norway, and have to collaborate or lead successfully a team that is multicultural, say mm. 10 nationalities or so. So I think that it's difficult to specialize in one culture. And understanding one culture doesn't mean that you will understand all the cultures. And sometimes, actually, it, it may be dangerous to think that, oh, okay, I understand the Norwegian culture, therefore mm -hmm. I will understand the Danish one. Right. right, because they look so close, and actually they're close but different. I'm also thinking in the business, this context that expatriates were sent abroad for work assignment are being relocated after their four or five years assignment in a country, and when they are reassigned, they are not necessarily reassigned in the same part of the world. So they no. will be, I don't know, spend three, four years in China, five years in Brazil, five in France. So yes. I think that in addition to knowledge specific to a country or to a part of the world, it's important to develop our students, business students, or just students in general, cultural intelligence. Right. And how do you inculcate cultural intelligence in a classroom in Bergen? How can you bring to life all the possibilities of things that people might encounter if they were to pursue these sorts of international careers or lives of the kind that more and more people are having these days? That's a challenging task. It's really to bring the complexity of the world to the classroom, right? So I'll try to exemplify with the two courses that I teach in intercultural communication. I have a course on East Asian culture and communication at the bachelor yes. level, and I have another course on global leadership at the master's level. I have different levels, different types of students, different knowledge base. So it requires really different teaching approaches. And as you rightly pointed out, I cannot bring the students to East Asia. So I have to mm -hmm. use different activities in the classroom. One of the activities that I use is case studies. So students examine an existing business problem and discuss possible solutions. And that's really good for students to develop their analytical skills. And it's also very good for them to understand that, say, cultural differences can actually is a relevant topic to study because it can create so many problems in the business world. Yes. So exposing students to case studies is one of the activities that I have. Another activity that I have is simulation exercises. So for instance, I have a case study on a business meeting between a Chinese and a British delegation. And so once we're done discussing the case, I divide the student groups into, well, two groups. One will represent the Chinese delegation and the other one, the British. And they have then, to, in their groups, they have to discuss the problem from the Chinese or from the British point of view. Mm -hmm. And doing so, the students really get to play this role and it helps students to see the other from the inside yes. uh, somehow and to learn to identify and see a situation from another perspective. And this right. is, I think, a crucial competence for third types of activities that I have that I like very much is experiential activities where students are effectively and cognitively engaged in a situation. Yes. So, for example, 
instead of lecturing about the challenges of working in a multicultural team, I put the students in a multicultural group and they mm -hmm. have to work together the whole semester. They're stuck together. Right. So they need to find common grounds to work effectively and deal with the misunderstandings or the frustrations that are associated with working with people who are different uh, mm -hmm. from you. And also they have to deal with conflicts if they occur. In that perspective, in one of the course that I teach, students are requested to write weekly peer-to-peer -peer student feedback. They write and then I anonymize the feedback and then I distribute it so that the students get can see how their contribution has been perceived by the members of the team and what improvement yeah. points have been detected. And the last activity that I use is reflection because mm -hmm. I think that experience or emotions, frustrations, they have a limited value if they are not reflected upon. Right. If a misunderstanding occurs, for instance, it's really useful for students to write it down, to reflect on it, to come with a potential corrective action, and then to test this new behavior. And in these reflections, students get to work on their self-awareness, on their cultural bias. And by doing so, I think that using all these activities together, they develop a, a form of, say, cultural agility, being exposed to different types of situations, learn how to tackle them, and therefore develop their cultural intelligence. Right. Is that a phrase then, cultural intelligence? So is there some abbreviation like CQ or something like that that people yes. use for this? So what would be the most common terms? Well, cultural intelligence is very briefly defined, the skill to relate and work effectively in culturally diverse situations, the ability yeah. to interpret cultural cues and act accordingly. Well, we get more and more theories on, on cultural intelligence shortly. You have three parts that are important. You have the cognitive part, which is the knowledge that you have about other cultures. You have the metacognitive part, which is briefly, again, knowing yourself and your own culture. Right. You know, knowing someone else's culture and then knowing your own action because part. Reflexivity is... Exactly, is, reflexivity. Right. And then the third part is the action part, the ability yeah. to actually adapt or to translate this knowledge into actions specifically. Indeed, because some people can get all this in the abstract, but they're still blundering around very ineptly. Yes, exactly. <laughs> right. yes. Interesting. Now, obviously, we've all been facing a lot of professional challenges over the past year and three months or so, because we haven't been able to work in exactly the way we were doing before. I can imagine how nice it it was when you were getting together groups of students in these groups of culturally diverse people and giving them a chance to work together over the course of a semester. What happens when you go into a COVID-19 pandemic-induced lockdown and the students can't see each other face-to-face? -face? Are you still able to replicate this kind of way of teaching? That was an interesting challenge, how to keep this interaction online. And particularly yes. given the fact that the activities that I use in the classroom are very interactive. I had no previous experience of teaching online, so that mm -hmm. was a lot to learn, but it was a really interesting process. I was actually inspired by the work of a professor at the Harvard Business School who has researched digital change in different industries, and he has been in charge of implementing the Harvard Business School offer online. Uh, right. He wrote a really interesting book, by the way, called The Content Trap. So his name is Anand. Can't remember mm -hmm. his given name. But the main message is in the digital world, connection among users is more important than content. 
And if we think about it, if we get back to March 2020, we focused a lot on, well, the lockdown and our teaching online. And the focus was very much on understanding the technology and how we could cover the content that we had online. And right. people stressed a lot about content, forgetting the end user, which are the students. And I got to know about Anon's work in 2019 during a short stay at Harvard Business School. Mm -hmm. And it really helped me rethink how I wanted to teach when the country yeah. shut down in March. So I had two questions or two aspects that were really important for me back then already. It was how could I keep my students engaged when the teaching was digital? And how could I create a sense of community in my classroom mm -hmm. when everything is taking place online? I actually thought about online teaching as a learning opportunity. And when you think about it, talked earlier about the positive way of thinking, take it as a learning or teaching opportunity. And I'm thinking about my course on global leadership. Mm -hmm. One of the topics that I discuss with these students is working in virtual teams with people yes. with different cultural backgrounds that never meet, with different sets of priorities that need to collaborate and work effectively towards a common goal. And that became very salient in March, April 2020, when right. my international students had to move back to their countries, had to deal yeah. with quarantine, hotels, emotional stress, different understanding of technology, and still had to learn to deal with this situation and work towards a common goal, which was to deliver a final mm -hmm. group report. So it was really, in some ways, it was great to illustrate my, my virtual team topic. So how did things actually work out, say, in teaching in small groups once you move those groups online? It worked well, I would say. I uh, implemented a few measures mm -hmm. that I think were successful in creating this sense of community that I talked about and interaction. So a few measures that I've created. The first one is that I implemented digital lunches or coffee. The idea is, was for students to get to know each other and it's easily done teaching online and you just connect 15 minutes before your session or, you know, you leave your session open 15 minutes after the class ends. And it's just a space for them, for the students to get to know each other and then also to get to know you and, and for me to get to know right. the students, which I think is very important. And in the past, you have frequently had this feedback that these digital lunches or coffee were highly appreciated by the students because right. it gave the students the possibility to connect and the feeling that they knew each other, though they never met. Another thing that I've done online is that I have communicated a lot about what I do to the students, mostly. So I like different teaching methods and I experiment a lot. And at the beginning, I thought that students would just understand, intuitively understand why I did what I do. And I realized that, well, they didn't. That's what I do now. I explain my teaching philosophy. I explain my teaching method. I explain what I expect from my students. And also during the classes, I give a lot of meta communication. I use a lot mm -hmm. of meta communication. I explain what I do when I do it, when I share my screen, when I cannot share my screen problems that I have with the different documents, etc. So I talk right. a lot about what I do. And at the end of each session, I always wrap up what the learning objectives were, what I intended to do, and how the activities that I implemented to reach these learning objectives. Another thing that I've done online is that I've used lots of group activities using breakout rooms, for instance. Yes. This is to engage students. And I think that I need to 
keep their attention so that they're not tempted to do other things during my classes. Indeed. Such as, I don't know, watching Netflix or doing the dishes. So Right. Turning off the cameras is always a bad sign, isn't it? Yeah. And actually, talking about camera, I actually have my camera on and yes. I ask the students to have their cameras on as well. Yes. And this in Norway, I don't know how it has been in Denmark, but in Norway, it has created lots of heated discussions. Students, right. for instance, didn't want to show their surroundings. Yeah. Yes. Yes, we've had a lot of resistance to some degree. What I've tried to do about the camera subject is I tried to lead by example, showing that my background is not perfect. I half a semester from my own bedroom with bad right. lighting on, and right. you know I had my kids in the background. Right. There was always a mess around. And then I taught now for a whole year from my guest room, again mm. with the kids' toys and drawings around. Right. And I don't make a fuss about it. Right. And I think that this really helps students yes. because they realize that, well, the situation is not perfect. So let's not pretend it is. Right. And let's just try to make the best we can do. Right. That all makes total sense. And what about lecture format? Because I found it's relatively easy once you break the students into these smaller groups to discuss things. It's very easy to make that interactive. But I can sit and listen to fairly boring lectures about very academic topics in a room for an hour without much problem because I'm socialized into that. But listening to people talk for a long time over a Zoom call is a very different matter. So how do you deal with the content delivery part of the sessions? Well, I don't lecture much. Right. I suspected that. So if students ask me on a specific point, mm -hmm. then I may have a mini lecture, max right. 10 minutes. But otherwise, right. the content part is moved before class. So before class, I ask students, so that's really the flipped classroom idea or method where students are asked to be prepared before coming to class. So they read papers, right. they watch videos. That, so I can make videos, lecture videos, short ones, or the, I ask them to read papers, or I ask them to gather information, and yes. then class time is devoted to interaction. That is very good, and it reflects the kind of things we've also done in our online events at NEOS, where most of the time I'm begging speakers not to talk too much and trying to turn those events into as much as possible conversations that may become podcasts like this one, <laughs> <laughs> rather than people talking for 45 minutes or unmentionable episodes in the past where people have talked for an hour and 20 minutes, more yes. or less, without pausing for breath, and felt that that was a perfectly reasonable kind of presentation, which it might have been in the past, but but I think it's harder and harder to pull off these days. But I think that if you have a one hour, 20 minutes lecture, then you don't need to have students in front of you. So you just record right. it, right? Or right. you can make three yeah. times 40 minutes Indeed. or four times, four times 30 minutes. Put that online, ask the students to watch these videos, yes. ask a few questions, and then discuss the content in class. So again, right. every time you meet the students, then it's really about creating this sense of community, interacting, discussing problems. And I think that right. I also think that students actually learn better when they discuss problems instead of being lectured about it. So it may be that before too long, most of us are getting vaccinated around this time. We'll revert to something resembling normalcy, which might not be the old normal, but would be a new normal. How much of what you've learned during this pandemic period do you think you'll be able to make use of once we're able to have more in-person physical teaching again? There are a few things I'd like to keep from this special time. Yes. I think that showing vulnerability is something that I'd like to keep. And 
sharing with students this vulnerability. I have this continuous dialogue with my students has been very useful to improve my classes and to improve my the, the mental health, really. And to create this safe learning environment where we can share how we are and how we feel there and then. But I think that from a pedagogical perspective, I think that it was really interesting to ask students to provide me with feedback on how things are online and how things can be improved. For example, students told me pretty early on that when we teach online, they need more breaks. Okay, then I included more breaks. I also think that sharing among colleagues has increased much during this time, and I hope that it will stay. Teaching online was new to most of us, and it really created this culture for sharing among colleagues. I'm thinking about NHH, for instance, we have teaching seminars, and sometimes we have experts in the field, but now we also have colleagues at different departments of the colleague next door talking about having these informal seminars and talk about how they can best use class time or Zoom or tap of the tablet. Or yes. So it's really this kind of hands-on tips, best practice sharing. I think that this has been very helpful and I hope it continues. And I think the last thing that I'd really like to keep and to develop further, again, I try to see potential opportunities with situations. And what I've experienced is that we can actually ask experts to come to our courses. Before it was, you know, with the traveling and and I really do, don't misunderstand me, I really look forward to be able to travel again. But in the meantime, I just find it great that we can have this discussion while I sit in my home office in Bergen and you in Copenhagen. And a few weeks ago, I don't know, I was in France, in Strasbourg online. Mm -hmm. And then two hours later, I was in Newcastle, same day. And then I went back and picked up my kids in Bergen. And I think that we could think about inviting our colleagues to our teaching. Then there's a lot of possibilities to discuss a case, to have a short lecture. Then, you know, you have the expert on the field who comes with a short lecture. So there are actually these intervention hop in. I find it as a great opportunity. Absolutely. No. And we're very interested in all these things at NIAS. We now have virtual super students coming to visit NIAS without setting foot in Copenhagen. And for the second time next week, we'll be organizing a virtual PhD workshop with 11 PhD students from all over the place, having their papers commented on by academics who are currently in various locations around the world. And these are all things that it would have been difficult for us to imagine beforehand. And that's a great opportunity for the students to get to know scholars in the Nordics. Exactly. So thanks, Anne-Lise. It's been great talking with you. Thank you for inviting me. I'm Duncan McCargo. I'm the director of the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies, and I've been talking to Anne-Lise Lee of NHH in Bergen about the challenges of cross-cultural communication and teaching in pandemic times. Thank you for joining the Nordic Asia podcast, showcasing Nordic collaboration in studying Asia. You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast.